So Roger, I'm pouring for you our 2016 uh, Semper Sunshades Vineyard Chardonnay. Mm. So this is uh, a wine that's uh, near and dear to, to my heart and many people's hearts. So Semper means always. That's right. My wife uh, is a writer by, by trait. And when um, we were dating, she used to write me these beautiful love letters, and they were signed Semper, which means always. Always. From a, a writer that used to write in the uh, write in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which is where she's from, Atlanta. Uh-huh. So she picked that up and used it. Um, and the, the funny part of that is she would always ask me why I never wrote her back. Um, and I always said to her that I, you know, I'm more of a business letter writer and she would probably break up with me if I were to try to respond to that. So <laughs> instead of doing that, I waited a number of years. Um, I always wanted to make Chardonnay and Pinot Noir in the style of Burgundy. And we finally sourced a vineyard uh, out on the Sonoma Coast, which is where this wine is made. And I call it Semper. It's my love letter back to her. So that's where this this brand comes from, the name Semper itself. That's a beautiful love story. Yeah, it's fun. And what a great way to start this episode. I wish our podcast audience can taste this beautiful wine because it is absolutely delectable. And welcome to episode 11 of Sip on This, a podcast that brings you into the wondrous experience of Napa Valley's and Sonoma Valley's wines. I'm Roger Chung, your host, and my co-host, Janae, is not with me today because she's actually in New Zealand working the harvest season down under. I'm here today at the Tuck Beckstoffer Estate in Napa Valley. I'm in this beautiful winery uh, all along Silverado Trail. Uh, it's hidden. It's a private estate. There's no signs for this winery out front. At the very top of the show, you heard the owner and winemaker, Tuck Beckstoffer, pour me a glass of Chardonnay. Tuck, welcome to Sip on This. It's so great to be here with you today. Thanks for having me, Roger. So this is your Semper Chardonnay 2016, you said? Yes. And that's a beautiful golden color. Am I seeing that right in this light? You are. It's, uh, it's almost a honeyed color. Um, and we get a little bit of a honey color because of the age on it, because it is a 16, it's got a couple of years on it. Um, and, and the oxidization that naturally occurs in the wine creates that color. Mm-hmm. And what kind of uh, aging do you do with this wine? Is it steel? Is it barrel? This wine sees oak. It sees about uh, 12 months of French oak. Oh, great. Um, depending on the year and the vintage itself, it can see anywhere from about 8 to 12 months in the barrel itself. Uh, we don't want to make wines that are over oaked or out of balance in any way so it's really a day-to-day issue in making these wines in terms of how we age them what we age them in and for what what length of time you do more neutral oak with these no the wine itself it's pretty um it's an amazing phenomenon really when you when you talk about chardonnay when you talk about chardonnays that have lots of oak right or that are buttery those are all a result of many, many things. Right. Um, this wine in particular, when we first started making it, we thought for sure we'd need to put it in neutral oak or no oak at all because really we wanted a lighter style and more of an old world style wine. But what we found is that the, the acid in the wine and the fruit itself really wanted and needed a lot of fresh oak. Mm. Not big toasty oak, but fresh oak. Mm-hmm. So this this wine sees almost 80% new barrels. Oh, wow. Um, so most people that taste it can't believe that. Okay. Um, because it certainly doesn't jump at you with oak or toast or any of those sort of, uh, sort of flavor profiles, even in the nose. But the wine itself, because of the acid, because of where it's grown, it lends itself to having more oak in it. Great. Integrated into it, I should say. I can't wait. Mmm. That's a unique bouquet. And normally when I'm for Chardonnay, I get a lot of maybe stone fruit. But this one almost has a bubble gum. 
bouquet to me. And, and these wines in particular, I get a lot of really ripe uh, citrus mm -hmm. uh, on the nose. Um, I really don't get any any toast or any butter or any of that really, and that's that's again a result of where the fruit is from. You know, we're I'm a big believer in the Sonoma Coast in the far western region of the Sonoma Coast for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Got it. The reason I like it, or the area, is because it gives us uh, lots of sunlight yeah. at particular altitudes without all the heat that's associated with it, say, in the Napa Valley. And then to make the kind of wines we want to make, you really need the, that sort of terroir and that sort of soil in sight. So it lends itself to being very ripe, mm -hmm. but not sugary ripe, right. which translates into alcohol. We get, we get all the ripeness that you would want in Chardonnay without all of that sugar which converts into alcohol. So at the end of the day, you end up with a wine that's low in alcohol, but has all of the, of the fruit forwardness and the balance and the weight of a wine that does have all that alcohol. So we kind of get the best of all worlds without it being like drinking a glass of scotch. Wow, this is a very luxurious wine. Thank it's you. very silky. It's got a little bit of creaminess, a hint of creaminess, not what it, you're, I'm used to tasting in a more traditional Napa Valley Chardonnay, but the elegance of this has really stands out amongst all the other Chardonnays that I've recently tasted. So typically, in, 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 not to generalize, but most people let their wines go through a secondary fermentation, uh -huh. which is called malolactic fermentation. Right. Um, that's really what creates all that buttery creaminess, that secondary fermentation. So right. with this wine, we let about 10% of it go through that secondary fermentation. The rest of it, we stop. And that really maintains all that crisp acidity that you're getting. What you're, what you're really describing is, is acid and brightness. Yeah. Um, and, and we get that, again, through the site, but also because we don't let the wine go through malolactic fermentation. You know, what we're really after in this wine and all the wines that we make is balance. We start that in the vineyard. Uh, with how we select the fruit, the site. Uh, we're very, very specific about that. Having been a grower and still a grower, that's very, very important to me. And really, it translates right through into the bottle. What, what is it about your winemaking philosophy that decided, I'm only going to do a little bit of a portion of this to make, make that brightness uh, and, and the citrus freshness punch through? Mm -hmm. It really comes from, you know, drinking wine for a long, long period of time and understanding what what happens with the wines to, to create what they are. So it really starts in the field, right? So we actually kind of reverse engineer these wines, if that makes mm. sense. We, we have a wine that we know that we want. Mm -hmm. We want this style of wine, right? So how do we make that? Um, and, and that's where our 45 years in the business really comes into play. We, we like to think that I know exactly where I need to go, first of all, where that site's going to be, to source those grapes to make this sort of wine. And from there, you know, we bring the, bring the grapes in, obviously, and we know through, you know, the years of experience that the wines that we like tend to have less, less malolactic fermentation, if any at all. When we look all around the world, you look at the white wines of Spain, the white wines of France, the white wines of Italy, and you look at them and there's a common factor in some of them. Um, that says, well, you should you should probably not go all the way through malolactic fermentation or malolactic fermentation at all if, mm -hmm. you want, if this is your goal. So in the first three or four years of making this wine, we played with it. We did 10%, we did none, we did 40%, we did full malolactic fermentation just to see what the end result would be. We're really kind of uh, 
setting the bar as or, or attempting to set the bar in what California Chardonnay can be. Mm. So typically people will say, well, we can only do this with California Chardonnay. Chardonnay right. in California should be in this style. It's what California offers. And we're saying, no, we don't agree with that at all. What we're saying is if you select the right sites, you're very careful about what you do, you can make all sorts of different kinds of wines. And this is a perfect example of that. And we, we never thought that what we believed, but had never seen, I should say, uh, anyone make a real effort to make a Burgundian style wine in California. We're not Burgundy, and Burgundy mm -hmm. is not California. Uh, they have things that we don't, and vice versa, right? So we're making that style. We are not attempting to make a Burgundy wine. If we wanted to do that, we'd go to Burgundy and try. But this is much more in that style, which is what we like and mm -hmm. prefer. So again, very much reverse engineered that. It has to do with the site, the clonal selections, um, you know, the length of days, the, the amount of sunlight they see every day, that what we call growing days or growing season. Is it short? Is it long? Right. What happens there? The temperature differentials at night and day. So all of that combined, we end up with that fruit. We bring it into the winery. Then we have the task of trying to make these decisions where, where the art really comes in um, is what kind of barrel are you going to use? How long are you going to let it sit in that barrel? Are you going to stir on the leaves? Are you going to let it go through malolactic fermentation? Right. When do you bottle? How do you bottle? What kind of filtration, if all, if any, do you use, right? And that's what you get into a lot of the fun art side of this thing when you start to blend these wines and do that. Yeah. Well, you know, as we were sitting here talking and I let the wine settle in my mouth, I almost get that savory key lime pie characteristic out of it, which is that brightness of that fruitness. And it makes it makes me want to yearn for this. This is a really delicious wine. And I think folks that come to Napa should come to, to your winery and taste this. This is a very elegant, very beautiful. Thank you. Nice job. That. Tuck, you lived in Napa Valley for nearly 45 years now. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey as a young lad and how that influenced you in the start of this great winery? Of course. My family moved to the Napa Valley physically in 1975. Uh, previous to that, uh, my dad worked for the Hubline Corporation, uh, which in the 60s and the 70s was really one of the larger corporations in the United States. And in 1968, they decided that they wanted to get involved in the California wine industry. At the time, my family and we were all living in the Bay Area, Atherton, which was long before it was Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. It was actually a sleepy middle-class bedroom community for people that commuted into the city to work. Um, he was tasked as a financial officer to put together a team and to come up and get Hubline in the business. So in doing so, they bought Italian Swiss Colony and Beaulieu and England Look. And, and my dad was tasked with putting those companies together and running them. And after a certain amount of years, they decided that they did not want to be in the vineyard business anymore. They, mm. they really liked the wine business, did not like the vineyard business. My dad loved the real estate aspect of the business and also just the farming aspect of it. So he bought that very, very small company that they had formed, just the vineyard company. And for years, my family farmed other people's properties. And my dad took all of the money that he made there and slowly amassed a portfolio of properties, which is what you see is Beckstoffer Vineyards. Now. Mm. So we, we've been here physically since 1975. We've lived here. So for me, I really grew up in the vineyards. Um, as a, as a kid during the summers, I worked in the vineyards or in our mechanic shop or what have you every day. Uh, and that was really my introduction and that, that was very much a farming introduction to, to the Napa Valley. Um, obviously went off to school, came back here after I completed my schooling, uh, worked for the family company for a number of years and really decided that I loved the wine business as well. So 
played around and dabbled in that for a few years while at the same time farming um, and eventually decided that I really wanted to run my own company and have my own thing. So I started started making wines full time and that's sort of grown into what we have today. Well, you know, you talked about two aspects of the winemaking process. You talked about uh, the farming, the vineyards, uh, but you also talked about the wine and the winemaking. Your, your family dabbled in both of those, but you actually brought them together, the, the growing process as well as the winemaking process. Which one do you like more? You know, that's a, that's a really good question. So, uh, you know, what I'd love to tell you is that Monday I, I wear my farming boots and Tuesday I wear my rubber boots in the winery. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really kind of how it is. I, I love both of them. Um, they are very, very different businesses. One is really an agricultural business. The other is sort of an agricultural business where we're actually creating a product to sell retail to, to people. Um, so in, in the vineyard business, you're farming and I'm selling grapes to the winemakers. Now I am the winemaker buying grapes. So I can put on both pair of shoes. I really enjoy both both businesses, both professions very much. And it really adds to everything that we do here. There's a handful of us um, in the Napa Valley, certainly or in the world that have done both things. Typically, you're either a farmer or a winemaker. Quite different people, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so the people that do both of those things, it's kind of a unique situation where we really have a leg up on, on everybody else in terms of what we know and how we apply ourselves. And at the very top of the show, you talked about how your wife helped uh, create the name for your Chardonnay. Tell us a little bit more about your family's involvement in this winery. So the family involvement really is, is such that uh, it, it's really me. It's my winery my family. Um, my wife has been instrumental in helping us sort of build, build this thing. And obviously, she's my right-hand person and, and has a say and what we do and has brought a lot of talent to the table in terms of how we communicate, um, you know, to your point, the design aspect of it, the naming, um, everything that we do has a story or a pedigree uh, behind it. Um, it's not, we're not a marketing company at all. We're really a wine company. Um, so every bottle that we have and the three wines that we're tasting today, there's a very specific story behind each one that's true. Mm-hmm. It's not a market, marketing campaign. So uh, to answer your question, she has everything to do with all of it, uh, as to everybody else in our team. Um, it's a very, very small team. Everyone is exceptional at what they do, and we all get along. So it's a, it's a, it's a fun place to work. You know what I love about good wines is the story aspect of it. And you're not pouring a bottle of wine, you're telling a good story uh, when you're enjoying a bottle of wine. And that's what I mostly love about a, a good quality wine. First taste of the Chardonnay, what do we have next? So I'm gonna pour for you a wine that we call Amulet. Um, Amulet is a Bordeaux blend uh, comprised of a few different varietals, um, primarily Cabernet with Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and Petit Verdot in it. Great. So it's a very classic blend. Uh, it's typical of what you get in Bordeaux. Um, those are the those are the varietals, and then a couple more that they use in Bordeaux. That's why Malbec. They use uh, Malbec. We don't use Malbec here. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really need it. Um, they do in in France. But it's still a Bordeaux blend. Great. Thanks for this. Well, how would you describe this color? This is really a garnet, a dark garnet color. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot. I mean, it's a, it's very purpley. This wine is obviously not lacking in color at all, and that's a, a result of the fruit and the sites where, where the grapes come from. Uh, but really, a dark ruby garnet color. I wouldn't call it necessarily red. It's much more of a deep purple than that. Right. Primarily Cabernet, you said. Right. The two big varietals in here are Cabernet and Merlot. And where do you get these grapes from? A lot of these grapes come from the estate property here themselves. And then we buy fruit from around the valley to two or three different sources 
Uh, we, we buy a lot of fruit from Oakville. Okay. Fans of the Oakville Appalachian. We're very big fans of the Appalachian we're in right now, San Lina. Um, and we're big fans of just north of here as well. It's, it really depends on the varietal, where, where we pick and select that fruit. Again, it, it brings us certain things from different areas of the valley. And we haven't talked much about the Oakville AVA or sub-AVA on, on, on this podcast. What are the characteristics, what are the traits of, of the Oakville terroir and the soil uh, and temperature over there? Oakville's really... And it's not far from here. Yeah, not far from here. It's, it's seven miles from here. Uh-huh. Um, Oakville is very, very interesting appellation, as is the entire Napa Valley. Um, what people have, have not learned or many people don't understand is that this area was, was and still is very active volcanically. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have one of the largest uh, hydrothermal plants on Earth is, is 10 miles from here. Oh, is that right? Didn't know that. It's still very active. So the result of that is in Oakville in particular, you get five or six almost sub-appellations within that appellation. So on the east side of Oakville, you have red volcanic soil. Mm. Uh, that's, if you look at it as you drive at the Silverado Trail, you can see that the color of the soil itself is almost a pinkish red. Yeah, That's iron-rich volcanic deposits, yeah. what that is, right? When you go to the other side, uh, what you get, and we can talk about Tokolon Vineyard, which is one of our family vineyards, that is an old ancient riverbed. Mm. So while it looks very nondescript from the top, you dig down a foot or so, you find pea gravel and rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's very interesting as well. So you can get that, those two things, plus you can get, if you get down close to the river, you get heavier clay loam soils, right? Right. So it's very specific with, within a quarter of a mile, you can be in something completely different. Right, right, right. And that's what makes Oakville and Napa Valley so interesting, is that the Appalachians really are different Appalachians. They bring these these specific vineyards in specific spots. Really bring very very different characteristics to the table in the wines. I love that, you know, and I love tasting soil and wines because it really brings out the true character of each wine. And what kind of soil is this? So this is comprised of, of that volcanic soil that we talked mm-hmm. about. Um, we get some of this from from Oakville up above on the eastern side of Oakville, mm-hmm. which is all volcanic. We get some more down from the floor. Uh, valley floor, which is more loam mm-hmm. soils. We get some of it here in this property, which is again, it's all broken shale uh, down to a certain certain extent. And if you look outside here, you see that it's very steep hillsides. One of the other vineyards is very steep hillsides, and the third source that we use is flat. This is a medium bodied wine, I think. I just sipped it and it's delectable. Oh my gosh. I definitely get some olive in this, maybe some olive tapenade. I get a good sense of. Uh, a, dry, a dryness in this wine, uh, but it's very well balanced. And, and what makes it, 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 it's not that traditional bold Cabernet. Maybe it's that Merlot that's bringing out that softness, that silkiness, that's balancing out the heavy Cabernet. And then um, I don't taste any of the tartness of a Petit Verdot in this. What are the percentages of this? Is it a significant Petit Verdot or, or, no, no, or no, Cafranc? No. Petit Verdot in this wine comprises maybe 2% of the wine mm. the most. Yeah. Um, we use Petit Verdot for finish. Got it, right. Uh, so, you know, while Petit Verdot is, is delicious all by itself and standalone, mm-hmm. there's definitely characteristics. And, you know, while we're talking about that, really, that what you're talking about that's very interesting is what really comprises the blend here. Yeah. Um, you were saying how much of it do we use in each varietal. The answer to that is in any given year, we use different percentages of those wines. Um, in a, in a hot year, we use a certain percentage of Cabernet. In a dry year, if we have a problem here, a problem there. That's what makes Bordeaux blends so special, is that you can really create consistency through great winemaking. 
Um, so Cabernet all alone is very, very interesting. A single vineyard Cabernet, it's a perfect expression of that site. But we like to say that, or I like to say that the single vineyard Cabernets are like that really cute kid with a chipped tooth. <laughs> Never going to be a supermodel. Right. Like lots of character. Right. Uh, and then lots of, you know, being that unique thing. And that's a single vineyard Cabernet, whereas the Bordeaux blends really are the supermodels of those wines or the, or the beautiful things that have consistency through many, many, many years. And the reason for that is very simple. It's Cabernet brings something to the table. Merlot does, Cab Franc does, as does Petit Bordeaux, right? And in different ratios within that wine, they create this this whole piece that, that's beautifully balanced from start to finish. What were you trying to achieve when you were blending this wine? We're really trying to, our overall goal here is to create wines with great balance. Mm-hmm. So what we don't want is something that jumps at you. I, I don't want you to taste that wine and say, oh my God, that's tobacco. That's right. really what I'm getting. Or, oh my God, I'm, just, I'm getting plums. That's, that's what I get. What I want you to do is, is to smell the wine, mm-hmm. pick up all the integration in that nose, and then taste the wine. And what we want it to be is a, is a gradual introduction, a mid-palate that sort of peaks, mm-hmm. and then a finish that, that goes on for minutes. Mm. Right, so a lot of times when you're tasting wines, we talk about that—the mid palate, the introduction, right. and the finish. Right, those are the three big things. Right. So if you break them down, what's that introduction like? What's the mid palate bringing you, and what's the finish like? Some wines have no finish at all; they just kind of go away really quickly. Whereas a wine like this will stay with you for for a minute, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes. You're still it's still volatizing in your mouth. You're still getting those flavors. It's still actively going on and that's really what we're looking for and those varietals blended together perfectly from really good sites with very careful winemaking will give you that they'll give you a very balanced product where you're getting lots of integration from lots of things and not one single thing that jumps at you as a wine grower you don't necessarily want those big plump juicy grapes uh, because as we've talked about before on the episode on previous episodes stress on the grapes is actually a good thing sometimes right to an extent um, yes, we want to create a certain amount of stress on that vine. Um, some people kind of blow that out of, out of proportion and, and say, well, you got to make a vine or you want, you want your vine to almost be dead because that's really where it's going to give you, you know, a certain thing. And that's not really true. If you have to do that, then we know that your, your vineyard itself or those plants are out of balance. There's something not right if you have to create a situation where they struggle to that extent. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, you know, we, we don't want to flood irrigate vineyards and, and give them all the water they could ever possibly want, right? Right. It's, and, and we don't want them to have all the minerals. We, we don't want them to live a life of gluttony, if you will. We want athletes in the vineyard. <laughs> that's right. And that translates into athletes in the bottle, if you will. Yeah. So and that's, a, that's a balanced product that we're looking for. And you really are not going to get that in the bottle unless you start with it in the vineyard. So that's a great concept, equating that with, with sports and athletes. So walk me through what you do as the winemaker. So you just took me out of the vineyard. You've grow, you grow these grapes. You source some of them. But you get all the grapes brought here to your winery, and you offload them off the truck, and you get them started in the, um, in the production process, first with fermentation, and then you end up putting them eventually into barrels. And at that point, tell me what you do, uh, because you have, presumably, you put each varietal in separate, in separate tanks, in separate barrels, you let them age. 
at what point do you start sampling the wines from the barrels? And at what point do you start blending them to make that ultimate decision? I'm going to start blending it in these proportions. Walk me through that. Sure. So it really starts, obviously, as we talked about, it starts in the vineyard. But once the fruit is delivered here, um, the process begins of fermentation. But even before fermentation, we, we make it a point to look at really each and every berry that comes into the comes into the winery. We do that at sorting tables. We, we really want eyes and hands on everything and every process. So the first the first thing we really look at at the winery is the fruit quality itself and we try to get rid of anything that we don't want. Mm-hmm. Anything other than berries we don't want. After that it goes in um, and we start to make decisions immediately right then and there. What kind of yeasts are we going to use? Are we going to let that fruit sit for a couple of days without doing anything? to let it stabilize, right? Um, these are decisions that we make as the fruit is coming in, based upon the, the flavor profile that we're tasting, the lab work that we that we have, and historical data that we have. So what I might do for Cabernet from the estate might be completely different than what I do with, say, Cabernet from Tokolon Vineyard, mm-hmm. uh, the way we process it. As you were coming in, you went through the fermentation room. Right. We have four or five different types of fermentation vessels made out of different materials. I saw that, right? You had some rectangular concrete tanks. You had some wood barrels, and you also had some stainless steel. What else did you have in there? We have, we have those three things in different uh-huh. shapes, and the shape and the... the the ratio of oxygen to the top of that tank as you're fermenting, it all makes a difference, right? Just right. the size and the shape of the vessel itself can make a drastic difference. Add into that the material that it's created from, concrete, as you said, is very different product than a wood upright that you saw, which is a very different product and result from a stainless steel tank, which mm-hmm. you also saw. Yeah. So we do a lot of experimentation with yeasts, with tank sizes, with how we treat wines, what we do. Um, and that all starts right away. It's not when it gets into the barrel. We're, we're, we're way, we want to be way ahead of the game. Um, we're, we start tasting the wines before they go through fermentation. We taste the grape juice. We make decisions based upon that. What kind of yeast that we want to use. It's all reverse engineered to try to create a product that we envision. Um, so after we make the yeast selections, it goes into fermentation. We control that. Do we want a fast, hot fermentation? Mm-hmm. Or do we want to retard that and have a long, slow fermentation? Mm. Uh, with Chardonnay, one of the things that we really discovered in, in the types of Chardonnay that we make is that a long, slow, cold fermentation lends itself to the types of wines that we want. With Cabernets, again, one vineyard, we might like the characteristics that are developed through a quick, warm fermentation, whereas something else from a different vineyard really needs or wants or we want to have a longer, slower fermentation. It creates a flavor profile that we like or that we don't like. Um, so everything is treated as a standalone. Every block from every vineyard is a standalone product. Um, when they go into barrels, they are a barrel is its own world, mm-hmm. right? A lot of people would say, well, that's our 10 barrels of Cabernet from Tokelon Vineyard. Right. Whereas we say there are 10 barrels there. They all came from Tokelon Vineyard. They are all quite different. And they will be different uh, just because of the barrel, the aging, the temperature. The temperature here is different than the temperature it is perhaps 15 feet away. But eventually you'll take those 10 barrels and blend them together, right? right? So after a year For that consistent taste. Right. After a year in the barrel, we start to really evaluate the wines based on flavor. Mm -hmm. Before that, it's a a lot of chemistry, making sure that the wine is stable and that it's good and that it's doing what we want it to do. 
but after a year we start to really be able to tell what that wine is going to be like in the bottle in two, three, four, five, 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. We start to make those assumptions based on our history in the, in the industry itself. So we'll put together after a year sort of some what we call trial blends. Uh, certain percentage of wine out of that barrel, certain percentage of wine out of that barrel. What we end up with is maybe 100 samples that the winemaking team goes through and evaluates. What, what do we really like? Okay, we'll start with 100 samples, we'll end up with three. And from those three, we'll break it down to one. That will be our initial blend. Um, we may blend some of that wine, we may not. But we know kind of where we're headed, what we need, what we don't have, what's lacking and what's not. After the second year is when we have to make that decision, when we actually have to blend the wine together and prepare it for bottling. So a lot of times here, what we like to do is after about 16 months, we want to create those final blends, actually create them, make them. Everything goes back into barrel as that blend and we let it integrate in that barrel for an additional six, eight, even 10 months. Okay. Right. But that's a year to year decision. Sometimes we want to do that and we're sure that we know that that's the blend. Other years, the wines are still developing in the barrel as their own singular products. And we want to let them do that a little bit longer. When visitors come to Napa Valley, uh, many times they'll come to go to a winery and they'll see uh, a dominant or a pure Cabernet. They'll taste pure Chardonnay and a pure Sauvignon Blanc. And, and you mentioned reverse engineering before. You make it actually a little bit harder on yourself by doing a lot of red blending. Blended wines are actually some of my absolute favorites because they have a lot of characteristics. Why do you choose to do blending uh, rather than pure or, or dominant varietals? Well, we in this winery in particular, um, we decided a while ago that we were going to originally first focus on the Bordeaux blends. The reason for that is that I believe that over time, consistently, a Bordeaux blend, and we're talking about Cabernet-based wines, mm -hmm. uh, the Bordeaux blends are the greatest wines in the world in terms of consistency and longevity over many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. um, we blend because I think it, it, frankly, it creates a more consistent, better wine over time, and that's that's a... You know, that's been proven over decades and decades and hundreds of years, particularly in France and other wine growing regions. I love single vineyard wines. Mm -hmm. We're talking about our family is, is really built its reputation on single vineyards that create single vineyard designate wines mm -hmm. that are 100% Cabernet from 100% vineyard source. Um, those wines are really, really fun to make. Um, the reason being is that every single year you get something different based upon the vineyard site, mother nature, what she has, what she offers us, everything, right? But you get what you get. 100% of that, that's what it is. One year, it's absolutely spectacular and the greatest wine on planet Earth. The next year, eh, not so much, right? So with Bordeaux blends, hopefully if we do our job well in the winery, uh, we get something that's very, very consistent year in and year out. So from a collector standpoint, while the single vineyard wines are really fun because they're very interesting, I can open up four of them from four consecutive vintages and they can be completely different. Right. My hope is that when you open a bottle of Mockingbird or Amulet, you get a level of consistency, right, that lasts through the ages. And you just talked about aging. Can you age blends as well as you age single varietals? Absolutely. Probably more so, uh, frankly. Again, depending on the site and the year. Um, if you have a, a year, you know, one year it might be very, very cold and rainy. 
the acids in the in the wine itself in a single vineyard might be really really high based upon that which adds itself to longevity mm -hmm. but the next year you may not get that you may get a very very hot very quick growing season where the wines are higher in alcohol they're not quite as balanced that does not lend itself to aging you put one of your blends on the shelf for about 10 15 20 years and it would pair up just as well as a cabernet that's been on the shelf for that long absolutely yeah hopefully better <laughs> uh, you know, more yeah. and more, and I, and I don't, I'm not judging wines that are single vineyard or right. not saying one is better than the other. That, that's one of the beautiful things about wine is that what you like, maybe I don't like, but that mm -hmm. certainly doesn't make it bad at all. I mean, we, we always tell people, you know, you should really drink what you like. Yeah. Of course, read the publications, do whatever you do, have fun with it. But at the end of the day, you should really be drinking what you like. Wine is that subjective, that's right? right. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the funnest things that, that I like to do with people um, particularly people that are really learning about wines, uh, is to do a, a brown bag. You know, Blind tasting. tasting, yeah. Right? Uh -huh. So I'm not going to tell you price points. I'm not even going to tell you what's in the bottle. We're just going to drink some, some wines here, and you tell me what you think. Yeah. Um, and it's always very, very interesting from the people that don't know a lot about wine, but maybe even more telling and interesting from the people that consider themselves to be experts. Mm -hmm. You put people in a very awkward situation when you give them a bottle that's in a bag and they don't know what it is, um, you really force them to, to try to tell you what they really like. Right. And that, that's important. Right. Uh, we do it all the time here. Uh, it's sensory evaluation, right, without being a, a label shopper. Right. It's really important. And it gets down to the, the, the idea that you should really drink what you like, what tastes good to you mm -hmm. is important. And you have one more wine on the table. It's called Mockingbird, right? Right. And this one is also a blend. This is another Bordeaux blend. Um, let me pour a little bit for you. Thank you so much. Mm, that's a deep color. And what's the composition of this wine? What varietals are in this so one? So again, this is the same varietals. This is Cabernet, uh, Merlot, Petit Bordeaux, and Cabernet Franc. Okay. Right. How does this wine distinguish itself from the amulet? So. This yeah, one, yeah. we really set out to make a, a wine with Mockingbird that we like to say is the culmination of 45 years in the industry. Mm -hmm. This is our, I can smell this that. Is the best of the best that, that we know how to make yeah. and grow. Um, it's a wine that, we, that I purposely mm -hmm. created or designed to be something that would be put down in your cellar and aged. Mm -hmm. A real prize, if you will. It's, mm -hmm. it's that trophy wine. Um, of course, we want you to drink it, um, but it's, it's really designed for the serious wine Cabernet-based collector. Mm. The bouquet is absolutely beautiful on this. Very floral. I get a lot of spices in this one. What what do you get out of the aroma on this? The aroma itself, I get a lot of that classic dusty Cabernet. That's right. Um, I get a lot of red fruits, mm -hmm. uh, more stone fruit than say apple. Oh, is that right? Citrus, right? I get more plum. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, late yes. summer, fall, stone fruit. Uh -huh. this. Uh, it's the, the deep complexity of it, but at the same time, there's a there's a brightness to this wine, a real ripe brightness, early summertime fruit that gives it all sorts of energy uh, in the wine itself. It's it's very almost light on its feet mm -hmm. by design. We, we wanted to create, again, mm -hmm. a wine of great balance and elegance here, whereas Amulet's a little bit more on the power side. This is much more nuanced, much el much more elegant, a little more thought-provoking thought and, and designed to age for a very long period of time. And what, uh, what vintage is this? Are these mostly 2016? Yes, this is 16. This is 2000. Mm. 
I could, you know, even though it's still young, only at 2016, the the bouquet of it is actually quite mature, a little bit masculine, a little bit robust in this. Cabernet is really, I mean, at at the end of the day, Cabernet is really the prize fighter of wines, right? It's people like Mm. Cabernet because it's 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 loaded with great flavor. Um, It can be very powerful and in your face, and it can also be very very elegant, which is more what you're getting with this wine. Well, but even early on in these wines, and these are very very young wines. It should be balanced. It should be integrated, right? It, it, this wine's going to change over time, but right. it's not going to change completely. Right. So if there's flaws in the wine now, they're not going to go away probably over time. So what you're tasting is is something that we we know and we think is really, really, really well balanced, well made, and you know, in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, this wine should be absolutely spectacular. How much Cabernet is in this? This is about 70 percent Cabernet. Yeah, because I could I, the, the Cabernet taste is very dominant in this one. It's very profound, and the first impression, and then it's very supple. The flavor uh, backs off, and it's very supple on the back end of this. It's very, it's a very lovely, um, impressionable wine at the very top, and then very gentle and soft uh, as it goes down the throat. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's got an elegance to it that's that that we really love. Uh, a long, beautiful finish. Yeah. Nothing is in your face at all. Um, it's, it's what we like to say. It's, it's beautiful integration. All that fruit, the acid, the oak, everything that, that is in the wine is integrated and works well together. Yeah. There's, none, there's no one thing that's jumping at you. So as you're pulling from the different varietals out of the barrel and blending them, at what point do you decide... Um, this is the this is the final blend. This is the final composition that I really like, and this is what we're going with. Right. It's it's one of the one of the most enjoyable processes. Yeah. Is blending. Yeah. Um, it's stressful, but at the same time, <laughs> it's really a lot of fun. And who's in there with you deciding that? We our entire team is involved in the process. Yeah. Right. It doesn't matter to me whether you're an enologist or a bookkeeper. Everybody has. A palate, right? And and in our company, we like to think that everybody has a has wine knowledge. I mean, the people that work here in the winery certainly are amongst the best in the world at that. But it's I find it very interesting to have everybody share their opinions. Now we don't have everybody share their opinions from the very beginning to the very end. But certainly, as we get along the process, we we invite and want people to try those wines to get feedback. Mm-hmm. What you taste in the wine or what I taste in the wine may be completely different than our state director. And those are those are valuable opinions that, that we want to hear. Um, so we'll start with perhaps 200 different blends with variations of 1% to 2% of different things. Uh, from that, we'll narrow that down. If, say we have 200, we'll narrow it down to 100, which is fairly easy, right? Mm-hmm. No, don't like that. That's kind of a, it's almost like speed dating. At that point. Yeah. Too tart, too bold, too strong. Yeah. Easily yeah. cast aside. Right. As we get down to say the last twenty-five, that's where it's it doesn't get difficult, but it really starts to challenge you. Do you have a general mood of wines, or is your mood dependent upon the time and day and place? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. For me, I do all of my serious tasting in the morning. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I I only have the ability to taste a certain amount of wines at a time. Right. After ten or twelve wines. Everything starts to taste the same. Whereas, I know I know guys and women that can taste a hundred wines with no problem whatsoever. Unfortunately, I I, I can't do that. So uh, it takes me a little bit longer to do it. But my palate's fresh in the morning. 
Uh, it's, it hasn't been you know corrupted by what have you lunch or anything else. So that's when I like to do. That's that's when I focus is in the morning. And what's the story behind Mockingbird? The Mockingbird uh, again is a has to do with my wife. Her favorite book uh, is To Kill a Mockingbird. So uh, we became we used the name. Uh, we found it. It hadn't been taken uh, remarkably enough, uh, and we grabbed it. I think it's a the word itself, mockingbird, the animal, it really lends itself to something of beauty. If you've ever mm-hmm. seen a mockingbird, it's a very peculiar bird in the way that it mimics others, and you know they're rare and they're they're really neat. When my daughter was uh, young, we had a mockingbird that lived at our house. Oh, is that right? That would sit outside of her window every morning <laughs> and whistle at her. It was really pretty pretty remarkable. Well, and this one had a relationship, so. It, again, the story lends itself to the wine. It's not just a name that we slapped on a bottle. There's a, a story behind it. Well, this wine definitely whistles at me. It whistles at it's a beautiful, lovely wine. Thank you. So tell me, how do folks experience your wines? How do they have a chance to come and taste your wines, or where can they get their your wines? So really, we sell the wines directly out of the estate itself, uh, Tech Backstopper Estate. Um, we have an estate director, Nathaniel Dorn, and our director of hospitality, Jessica Edson. Um, if people want to taste the wines, they can call us or email us at Tuckback Software Wines. Um, we'd be happy to set them up an appointment. And what kind of experiences will they have when they come here? Our experience is, is quite a bit different uh, than, than most experiences that you have. We don't have the traditional tasting room. Uh, what we like to do with our people is really provide them with an education of what we do and why we do it. And that starts outside in the vineyard here again, which is so near and dear to our hearts, mm-hmm. and comes into the winery. So it's it's not a 20-minute tasting experience here at all. Um, it's a, it's a two-hour-plus um, experience with Jessica, who is, is one of the top people mm. in the industry. So and you're, you're really getting something here. If you're really interested in wine and the process and the stories behind it, and you want to be educated as to what we do, this is the kind of place that, that that's the experience that we offer. You've shared with me three of your most beautiful wines. How many other uh, labels or SKUs do you have? We make a, a little bit of uh, wine called Dancing Harris here. Um, the previous owners of the facility had the brand when we purchased the winery itself that came with it. Um, we, we generally taste Mockingbird, Amulet, and Semper here. Mm-hmm. In Semper, there's Pinot Noir as well as the Chardonnay. Um, so those are the those are the labels. Those are the varietals that we really make here. We make Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Cabernet. Mm. And tell me, Tuck, when you are out at dinner, do you go for a blend or do you go for a single varietal? What do you? What's a good question? Yeah. Uh, what do you we, prefer? We get answer. We, we get asked that all the time. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, throughout the industry, and you know, just as friends, right? It really yeah. depends on the day. Yeah. Did you have a good day? Did you have a bad day? Are you yeah. celebrating or are you drowning your sorrows? <laughs> um, is it cold? Is it hot? Yeah. Uh, what time of the year is it? What are you eating? Yeah. Um, a lot of people put too much emphasis on what you're eating, but but that's a whole other story. But. I'm sorry, I can't answer your question. Yeah, right. I'm going to go for a blender. I'm going to do a Cabernet. It's all about Tonight, the mood. Tonight, I might want to have a, a Rhone varietal wine, right? Yeah. I might be in, you know, I might want that. I may want to have a beer tomorrow night. Um, you know, it, it, again, it, it's a very, very difficult question to answer because it really depends on the day, your mood, and everything that's going going on around you. You do a lot of red blends, and you do them so well. Thank you. We, in the industry, it's, it's kind of funny. We... We drink very little of our own wine, um, and that's because we're always trying to, to learn, or for me in particular, I really like to get outside the box. I like to try wines from different regions, from different parts of the world, to try to find out 
and understand what is in that bottle and how that was created, right? That's a big part of, of what we do and it's what brings me great enjoyment. It's like looking at art. So Tuck, if you're someplace else in the country, if you're not in Napa Valley or if you're not in California, how do folks get your wines? So really the, the best way to get our wines is to get on the mailing list. Uh, and that's done directly through our website or by calling us. So tuckbeckstopperwines.com, tuckbeckstopperestate.com, you can get in, um, sign up to get a, a spot if we have a spot available on the mailing list, certainly get in line to get in those spots. And then by getting on that list, you get our, you receive our offerings. So that means you have very limited production. Very. What volume of wine do you produce a year? So in the, in the three wines that we tasted today, none of these have a production level of over 350 cases. Mm. Very, very small production, which lends itself to just selling to our clients directly. Or we have a handful of restaurants that we've hand-selected around the world that we've made the wines available. Well, I got to say, I first was introduced to your wines maybe a, a year ago. I was at the Oakland Wine Festival in Oakland, California, and I met Jessica. I very vividly remember tasting a lot of your wines and your labels. The design of your labels are dashing. It's very, it makes a great impression. And so I, when I started this podcast, I said, I got to go back and try these wines again because they are just that elevated and they are, are simply inspirational uh, delicious wines to be had so thank, thank you, you so, so much. much it's been a wonderful day I appreciate great. it please come back and visit I'd love to and you have another label of wines right we do we make a, a portfolio of more value priced wines that are available um, in the marketplace and that is called 75 right we have a label called 75 we have a rosé called hot wash mm. and we have another label called the sun which is a red wine okay great well, Tuck, it's been such a great day with you. Thanks so much for spending time with me today and introduce, reintroducing uh, your wines to me. But I'm so glad to be introducing your wines to our podcast audience. And I hope you all come to SipOnThis.org and take a look at the pictures that we post today. Uh, and you'll get to see the beautiful design on these labels. So I encourage everybody to come and sample these beautiful, magnificent, luscious, uh, delicious wines. And if you want to come here, it's right off the Silverado Trail, but uh, make a reservation first and go to tuckbeckstoffer.com or call them at 707-200-4410 to make your reservation. We're open uh, by appointment only, so uh, with prior reservation, we're open seven days a week. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast, Sip on This, on uh, Apple Podcast, iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And check us out on siponthis.org, where you can see pictures from today's tasting experience and ask questions, which we'll answer on an upcoming episode. Until our next podcast, live life peacefully, productively, and deliciously. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Puck. Thank you. What a great time with you. Thanks for opening your place up to me.